Welcome to the Report Card with Nat Malkus, the education policy podcast from the American Enterprise Institute. Until recently, that term critical race theory, or often CRT for short, was relegated to academic journals and graduate-level seminars, mostly boring. But if you've kept up with the education news, even in the slightest over the past few months, you've probably read about fiery debates happening in state houses across the country over banning critical race theory in K-12 through classrooms. As with a lot of debates these days, the battle lines are largely reflective of political differences, with liberals generally supportive of teaching CRT in K-12 schools and conservatives generally skeptical or outright hostile. On this episode of The Report Card, we're zeroing in on that skepticism coming from some of us on the right and critiquing lawmakers' efforts to ban CRT in schools. Joining us are two of my AEI colleagues, Ian Rowe and Robert Pandicio. Ian Rowe is a resident fellow at AEI, where he focuses on education and upward mobility, family formation, and adoption. He's also co-founder of Vertex Partnership Academies, a new network of character-based international baccalaureate high schools opening in the Bronx in 2022. He also spent 10 years as the CEO of Public Prep, a charter school network based in the South Bronx and Lower East Side of Manhattan. And Robert Pondicio is a senior fellow at AEI, where he focuses on curriculum, teaching, school choice, and charter schooling. Before coming to AEI, Robert was a senior fellow and vice president for external affairs at the Thomas B. Fordham Institute. Like Ian, Robert comes to this discussion with quite a bit of practitioner experience, previously serving as a civics teacher at Democracy Prep Public Schools, and before that, a fifth grade teacher at a public school in the South Bronx. Ian, Robert, thanks for coming on the report card. So I usually try and start these episodes, you know, with the basics. And in this case, the basics can be pretty complex. That's because critical race theory is at once a particularly sort of narrow academic theory and also is manifested in this larger culture war where that term really gets played around with a lot. So let me ask to keep your answers as bare bones and specific on this as possible, but Ian, in a very narrow academic sense, what is critical race theory? Yeah, it's a a really good question because it does feel like sometimes you're boxing a shadow trying to nail down a definition, you know, someone will say, well, that's critical race theory. Here's an example of it. And then another person will say, well, you don't even understand it. And it's just like this moving target. So what I like to do is go back to the original text, you know, go back to the, the, the intellectual giants behind critical race theory. And there's a book called Critical Race Theory and Introduction by Richard Delgado. And this is how he defines it. Quote, unlike traditional civil rights, which embraces incrementalism and step-by-step progress, critical race theory questions the very foundations of the liberal order, including equality theory, legal reasoning, enlightenment rationalism, and neutral principles of constitutional law, end quote. There it is. That is is a definition of critical race theory from one of its uh, architects, Richard Delgado. So it's really important to know that critical race theory puts itself in opposition to equality theory and neutral principles of constitutional law. So this is not stuff that you would be teaching in first grade, right? Because these are some pretty sophisticated concepts. And so, look, we live in America, which is a place which values free expression of ideas, even, even the ones we disagree with. 
So this should be debated. Don't ban it, debate it. You know, put uh, critical race theory, uh, if you're gonna teach it, then it has to be taught alongside the ideologies that it's claiming to repudiate. So teach equality theory and neutral principles of constitutional law in one setting. The problem is if you're talking about teaching a theory, uh, it becomes a problem when it becomes critical race theology, meaning that there's only one view. Well, let me ask you about that, Ian, because I got to tell you, from the way you're presenting this, I just am not sure that a bunch of eighth graders in their constitutional law classes are actually getting critical race theory. So, you know, the first question I'm I'm wondering is, how did it make the jump from this sounds like a fairly, you know, I mean, relatively abstruse theoretical concept with particular applications in graduate school, law school, so forth, to such a great concern in K-12 schooling. Right. I, I, I doubt that they're uh, fifth graders uh, uh, learning about the difference between critical race theory and equality theory. Um, so the actual theory itself is most likely still only being taught in, in higher education, maybe high school mm-hmm. seminar. But again, that's why this whole conversation gets confused between the teaching of critical race theory and what I define as critical race practice, which, is, which are um, policies and practices now being implemented in schools that are inspired by critical race theory. And I'm looking forward to having that discussion because that's a really rich discussion about what actually is happening in first grade and fifth grade across our schools. So that that sort of bridges to the K-12 context, clearly. Um, as I mentioned a few moments ago, both of you have not just been in the policy world, you've also had lives of practice, running schools, running classrooms. So let's try and bridge that gap. I, I wonder how often did you run into, and I'll, I'll ask both about critical race theory, but also critical race practice that we're talking about when you were practicing in your schools. Robert? Yeah, I, you know, I, just, I just wrote a piece for commentary about this that's uh, in, the, in the July, August issue, and it traces some of this history. So I was in education school 20 years ago. And while we were not discussing critical race theory, we were talking about, say, culturally relevant pedagogy, cultural competence. I, I think it's important to contextualize this. I mean, I, you know, I stole a line from Hemingway in this piece and talked about how you know, like, like the character in The Sun Also Rises, who, you know, who says he went bankrupt uh, gradually and then suddenly. Well, that's, that's what's happening with, with critical race theory in American education. It's come to dominate our conversation gradually and then suddenly. I mean, there, there's been a long, long history in American education of conceptualizing the job of schools and teachers as, as being driven by social justice imperatives. So you know the, the the names may change, but the impulse is is a is a is, is a hardy perennial, so to speak. Um, and and indeed, no, I've been in education now twenty years. There hasn't been a day of those twenty years when it, when it was not drummed into my head that we have a solemn obligation uh, to you know close racial achievement gaps, to be fixated, uh, focused on on um, you know the, the the academic outcomes of of black and brown kids. That's not new. You know, so it, it may take different forms, um, but, but education, you could argue, has been thoroughly racialized by both practice and policy for decades. Uh, so this is, it, it's entirely likely, I think it's, it is uh, feasible to say that if you're a classroom teacher, the distinction between you know, what's critical race theory, what's culturally relevant pedagogy, what is um, cultural competence, 
it's almost meaningless, not, not even, it is meaningless. It's just, it's just another way of conceptualizing the same thing. So the, you know, the debate about what is or is not CRT, it's interesting to, you know, to those of us who you know, take a scholarly approach to this, but I'm not sure it's really that relevant uh, in terms of how it arrives in, in the classroom. What we really should be focusing on is, is you know, what, what are, the, are the signals that we're sending to 3.7 million American K-12 uh, school teachers? And, and that's where this becomes problematic. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm going to spend the next 45 minutes basically saying I agree with Ian Rowe, which is going to be, you know, a, a boring podcast. Uh, but he's right. In other words, it's not about, you know, whether we should teach this theory or ban it. It's about the degree to which it's appropriate to privilege this point of view, to, to communicate to kids uh, that, that this, you know, kind of, uh, you know, view of oppressors versus oppressed is, is you know, the, the, the true and only vision of American history. That's, that's where this really you know, becomes a, a hot point, uh, to your point, Nat, in the culture wars. So these, these terms can, can be slippery. Ian, I like your distinction between critical race theory and critical race practice, because one is obviously seated in a particular context. And actually, I could think that some of this critical race practice, if it was somewhat balanced, may be appropriate in high school, whereas in elementary school, it quickly becomes uh, something that's hard to describe as anything but indoctrination. So I can understand where those alarms would go off. As far as the framing of this and the cultural d- debate, I mean, where has this hubbub a- arisen from? It seems to me that there's uh, some blame on both the left and the right to go around. But Ian, what are the currents that have brought us to this point right now where this year in legislatures across the country, we're we're really hitting this issue time after time after time? Right. Well, the backdrop to all of this is that, you know, since George Floyd, um, the disproportionate impacts of COVID, you know, our country is having a national reckoning on race and schools have become the flashpoint because folks want to control what the next generation believes. And I think as critical race theory or critical race practices have started to truly manifest themselves, then a lot of parents are saying, wait, you know, I, 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 I believe that our country should uh, uh, teach appropriate history. We should teach about slavery. We should teach about black resilience in the face of slavery. I believe all that, but I don't, like my kids are now being lined up in a horizontal line and the teachers at the front of the room saying, well, if you're white because you're an oppressor and your supremacists take three steps forward, and if you're black because of your oppression and you're marginalized, take five steps backward. You know, people are starting to see things like that to say, wait a minute, that feels to me like we're back in the 1960s when we were fighting racial segregation. And so these are the kinds of practices and we could name a bunch of them. You know, when, when teachers are separated by race in professional development, literally the white teachers go into one room, you know, the white with a whites only sign and the other teachers go into the other room and, and the white teachers have to uh, declare their oppressive tendencies. You know, there, there are gonna be more and more cases where people say, wait a minute, that's compelled speech. That's a violation of the First Amendment. Um, and so these are the kinds of practices that are violating the legal apparatus that we worked hundreds of years. I mean, a lot of people died and fought for uh, for the Civil Rights Act of 1964 to be passed. And I, you know, for me, those are the things that I think are making people uh, very uncomfortable because that we're now outside of 
a healthy discussion about how we should talk about American history and slavery and the legacy. That's a very rich discussion. But when we get into the practice now, where we're literally demonizing, uh, separating people by race, uh, ascribing negative or positive characteristics by race, then we're violating literally the legal apparatus that was built to uh, stop all of this kind of these forms of racial discrimination. Those things make me uncomfortable, too. You might not be surprised to, to learn that, Ian, uh, those, those extreme examples. Whether you call them the extreme or, or not, that's extreme classroom practice by, by my definition. Uh, but I do wonder to what what's the scale of this problem? For instance, to hear some folks talk about it, you would think that this happens in every other classroom across the country, which I personally don't think is the case. And I'm not sure... Uh, what the prevalence of this is, whether it's uneven across states, whether it's particular in states that may lean left or not. Um, Robert, do you have a sense of where these uh, anecdotes become data, where the spread of this practice is, or do we just not have any good grasp on that? Well, look, I would argue that we don't have a good grasp into classroom practice, period. Um, I mean, I, you know, I have a complicated relationship with, with a lot of this stuff. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm not a big fan of the, 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 the impulse to, quote, ban CRT, um, nor am I kind of, you know, uh, uh, blind to the fact that we have very little, or none of us, I guess I should say, should really kind of be blind to the fact of how, you know, very little sense we have of what actually goes on in, in classrooms. I mean, for example, you know, if you look at the California Ethnic Studies curriculum that has been fought over tooth and nail for the last couple of years, you know, I've pointed out, others have pointed out that, look, you know, there, there's, there's no exam here like, a, you know, like an AP test. Um, this is a curriculum framework. We have tons and tons of data from RAND and, and, and other organizations that show almost literally every teacher in America uh, uses material primarily that they either create or curate or find on their own. So this idea that somehow you're going to either ban a curriculum or once you've settled you know, at, a, at a state level, what is and is not in the curriculum, that the problem is solved, uh, that, that just, uh, you know, that, that goes against everything we know about what actually happens in, in actual classrooms. So, um, you know, th this frustration will continue, Nat. This is not only, you know, slippery terms. It's, it's once things disappear into the black box of the curriculum or uh, the classroom, we have vanishing little, little sense of what's actually happening inside. Yeah, I mean, I, I, one of the questions that rises to my mind when I hear this is how much of the reaction in mostly conservative legislatures that are bringing up these bills to ban CRT, ban divisive concepts, trying to combat this, this tide that they see as a, a threat to um, good practice in their classrooms. Across the board, are some of these bans reasonable? Or across the board, is this a thing where we say, you know, the, the bans at the state legislature level is just, uh, you know, it, it depends on how they're written. It's probably better politics than pedagogy, I, I guess I would say. I mean, on the one hand, I've, you know, I'm, I'm pretty uncomfortable with the idea of banning anything um, because it just seems anti-intellectual and, you know, anti-American. Um, th that said, um, you know, I'm, I'm not going to make a full-throated condemnation of, of these bills because, you know, the, the, the fact of their existence in 20-odd states, and, and your point is well taken. I mean, there's a range, you know, good, better, and best in terms, or, or bad, worse, and, you know, even, and terrible, uh, depending on your perspective, to these bills. 
But, you know, it's important to kind of reckon with what are they trying to accomplish? Because there really is, whether they the lawmakers like to admit it or not, there's really a limited amount of control you can exercise over classroom content and, and um, you know, pedagogy from afar. But if, if all that comes out of this is this sense that teachers who, who might, for, for whom critical race theory might be unquestioned wisdom, if they take the signal from these pieces of legislation that, huh, this is sensitive stuff. Maybe I should tread carefully here. Well, that's not a bad outcome. I mean, you know, there, there's no teacher should go to work in the morning, frankly, at least no public school teacher, assuming that they're a free agent and that they are free to do what they want in front of a captive audience of children. I mean, a certain amount of professional uh, you know, dis discretion or circumspection is warranted. So the, to the degree to, to which these pieces of legislation send a signal that you know, tread carefully here. This is sensitive stuff. That's that's not that's not a bad outcome. Ian, what are your thoughts on these bills? Uh, you know, I mean, you know, what should a teacher wake up uh, every morning? Well, hopefully the teacher is waking up thinking, how am I getting my kids to learn how to read, Amen. to do math, to focus on science? And, you know, my my big concern here is that all of this, all of this is a massive distraction. I mean, it is still the case that only a little over a third of all kids in our country are reading at grade level, according to the nation's report card. You know, and it's not just black kids, you know, in, you know, in the entire history of the National Assessment of Educational Progress, which is called the nation's report card, since 1992, this test, which is given every two years in math and reading, right, at fourth grade, eighth grade, and 12th grade, there has never been a case in which even a majority of white students are reading at grade level, right? In 2019, if you just, that was the last year that the test was given, uh, cumulatively at fourth, eighth, and 12th grade, 3.75 million white kids, white kids were not reading at NAEP proficiency, right? And, and, and 1.4 million black kids were not. And of course, there are more white kids overall. But as I've said frequently, it's not, it's unlikely that it's because of systemic racism that nearly 4 million white kids aren't reading. Like, and, and so if we really start to dive into this, maybe there are factors outside of race that cumulatively might be more dominant reasons no, for no, why no, all no, of our kids are not succeeding. And, and by so, the way, Ian, if, sorry yeah. to interrupt, but if, if, if you want to look at NAEP history in civics and, and geography, well, that makes NAEP reading look like a relative strength. The, the, exactly. the data that, that you just described about, you know, two thirds of American kids are, are below proficient. Well, four out of five are below proficient in history. So it's kind of almost goofy to talk about, you know, uh, what version of history we're teaching when we're barely teaching any at all. So I take your point, but... I also understand that the the student that is in a school that is sort of out on the periphery of, of critical race practice stands to internalize a lot more from a, a set of teachers or a school that's run according to these principles than they would from a civics class. So I, I, I take your point as, well, we're not doing so well on the teaching, but I wonder if the impact on students from this critical race practice is maybe more effective at uh, communicating to students how to think and how to interact with the world than the instruction that they've been receiving is. I mean, do you see that threat from these sort of approaches? Go ahead, Ian. 
No, I was going to say, you know, I've ran the network of public charter schools in the heart of the South Bronx for 10 years. And as you mentioned, I'm launching a new network of high schools starting next year. I don't think I had ever a parent who said or a black parent tell me, please tell my kid that they live in, uh, in an oppressive society that's so oppressive, they've got no ability to, uh, to overcome it. Right, that, that, that so heavily focuses on this idea of white power or racial subjugation to the exclusion of the incredible stories of resilience and excellence that has existed throughout this country's history and exists today. I mean, there are more black kids in college than in prison. Most people might think that that's reversed based on the dominant narrative. I just saw some data from the Harvard discrimination case uh, where Harvard is forced to publish their admissions criteria. Harvard, in all their admissions, ranks um, all their applicants in 10 different academic categories. If you're, in the top, if you're Black and you're in the top two academic categories, your chances of getting into Harvard are 56%, more than one in two, which is four times as much as Asian or white kids in the same top academic categories. Why are we telling kids about that? Why are we telling uh, black kids and uh, Hispanic kids of, of these enormous opportunities that exist if they're academically prepared? And, and, but instead we seem to be so mired in this, what I, in my view, a narrow focus on we must teach uh, a history through the prism of slavery and this category of oppressor versus oppressed. If you're a 12 year old kid in the, heart, in the heart of the South Bronx and you wanna do great things, the last thing you need to hear is that this country has anti-black racism embedded in the DNA of the country. What's a 12 year old kid supposed to do with that? You know, I, I could see Ian a really terrific unit. Heck, even a year-long study in the, the civic seminar that I that I was teaching uh, until last year, where you ask this question. You don't present one or the other, but you make this and you know a, a topic of inquiry for 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 many weeks or even you know again the entire school year. Is the United States systemically racist? Yes. Uh, and then you assign readings from you know both both you know Nicole Hannah Jones and John McWhorter or Ian Rowe for that matter and or and, Thomas and you, Sowell exactly and you and you look at the data and and I mean you know th this is a rich vein of ore to mine if you're a civic educator to not you know presume the answer to the question but to just you know, uh, subject it to exploration and and you know kids are smart I mean they they, they know when they're being led. Um, you know, and, and that's where I think we should be really on our guard as teachers to make sure we are not bringing our own perspectives to this. I know this is an unpopular opinion, but I mean, my personal belief is our politics as teachers has no room in the classroom and it should be about uh, helping uh, students form their arguments and reach their own conclusions, not leading them to the ones we've already made. What you suggest, Robert, sounds like a, a pretty good high school seminar in U.S. history, how we might chase a particular question and teach kids to read original sources, think through them, and, and, and process it. There's a bunch of folks out here who look at these bills and say, those could definitely get in the way of exactly that kind of teaching. I wonder how, uh, how those downsides sit with you. How many of these anti-CRT bills do you think might do more harm than good? Yeah, I, 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 I can't pretend to have read through every single one, but typically you have to look for the language in them. For example, you know, one word that you see in a, in a lot of these bills is, is uh, guarding against, quote, promoting a view. In other words, it doesn't say you can't teach it. It just says you can't promote a divisive view. 
uh, which I interpret that as meaning you can't privilege it, you can't say this is right, that's wrong. Um, but I mean, I, I've read enough of these bills to think that absolutely no one is saying, as, as some are charging, uh, that this forbids us uh, from, from talking about uh, race and racism in American classrooms. Somebody tweeted, and I don't know who it was, I think from the New York Times, how ironic it was that we were making Juneteenth a national holiday at the same time 20 states were forbidding teachers from talking about it. Well, that's just silly. You know, none of the bills do that whatsoever. My, 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 my uh, article of faith, again, with no data, just, just a common sense gut call, is that the vast majority of Americans would be completely comfortable, even eager to have their, their, their students in an age appropriate way discussing controversial topics. What they, what they bridle against is teachers putting their thumb on the scale to privilege one point of view over the other. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. I mean, the, to, to the degree any of these bills are in the category of banning theories or banning ideas, there should be pushback against them. You know, we can't ban the discussion of Marxism or, or, or sure. communist nations. You know, critical race theory should be in that same category of debate. But it's when, again, these practices that violate either the the, the provisions in the Title VI of the Civil Rights Act that prohibit racial discrimination, we fought that battle before. We fought the battle before against segregated water fountains. We can fight it again, fight the practices related to critical race theory that either violate Civil Rights Act or uh, violate First Amendment. Um, uh, the, you know, the other thing I think um, is that teachers um, need empowering alternatives. I mean, the one thing I can say related to the 1619 Project is that it certainly has uncovered that there is demand for content that would empower teachers to, to uh, teach a more complete telling of the African-American experience in the United States. And so I joined forces with a number of black scholars at something called 1776 Unites and we've done just that. We've created what I think is a, a, the beginning of a fantastic curriculum that tells the broader story. I mean, we just released a unit, not only on the Tulsa massacre, but on what happened prior to the Tulsa massacre and what happened afterwards in terms of the rebirth. The, it, it's how do you tell a more complete, authentic story of, of um, the history of racial subjugation and what has happened in this country to empower us to now live where, you know, a formerly enslaved people are some of the most influential uh, folks in the country. And that, uh, that curriculum, my last point here, has been now been downloaded more than 15,000 times by teachers yeah. in all 50 states. Um, you know, so there's, there's something there that, so I think we also have to meet teachers where they are, which is like, okay, fine. But I do want to teach about, I do want to tell a more complete story. And so I think there's a, there, hopefully there's a meeting of the minds here where we can teach a greater level of African-American history, the context of slavery in the broader world context so that people understand that slavery was not unique uh, to the United States and that, and that it's okay, but we can do that without demonizing um, uh, people and labeling oppressor versus oppressed, for example. No, nobody needs critical race theory to teach racism and oppression. I mean, those are right. just historical facts. You know, so in other words, it's, it's worth separating those two things out. Obviously, I mean, I, I shouldn't say obviously because nothing is obvious anymore. But, but find me, you know, uh, somebody who thinks that we should do anything less than teach children 
you know, a, a full and fair accounting of their country's history. I, I simply don't know anybody who's saying anything other than that. But that you don't need CRT to do that. Where it crosses the line and where people get uncomfortable, and I think justifiably so, is, is when you are, you know, and I, and I think the, you know, the, the, the idea of indoctrination is, is oversold, but you know, when, you, when you tiptoe close to that line of privileging a point of view that says, look, the country is structurally racist, the country is irredeemable, et cetera, uh, you know, when, it, when, when it overtly or, or quietly sends those signals in that you are, I think, rightly uh, concerned about that, boy, why bother? If I'm, if I'm a low-income kid of color, the, the, the odds are stacked against me, you know, why, why bother? That's a very, very dangerous notion. And, and look at, you know, the, at the highest level of abstraction, we, we tend to forget this. The vast majority of us who are teachers are public employees. We work for a government organization. It's just kind of surpassingly strange um, to, to set ourselves in opposition to, to the kind of this, the, the, the larger civic mission of, of schools in the country. In other words, we're putting ourselves on a collision course with, with the, 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 the government body, so to speak, and the, and the lar larger culture that, that pays our salary. That's a, that's a strange thing if you think about it for teachers to think is, is, a, is a worthwhile thing to do. And Robert, I think it's important to point out here that we're talking about this in terms of K-12 schools, K-12 public schools. And a, a lot of the, the, the bills that we've been talking about treat it both in K-12 and post-secondary in, in separate ways. And that's because the speech of teachers varies in important ways between K-12 schools and post-secondary institutions. Can you just point out what if, the differences are? Wow. If there is a big, you know, unexplored gray area in all of this, Nat, it's exactly what that question implies. Uh, talk to a teacher, and I guarantee you that they will, they will believe that they have something like academic freedom, which is a concept that comes from higher ed. It literally does not exist in K-12. I mean, there have been, you know, several court decisions that functionally say, not functionally, directly say that teachers are, quote, hired speech and, and give uh, school boards, uh, you know, virtually unquestioned authority to set curriculum. You're, as a teacher, you know, again, as a public employee, your job is to deliver that curriculum. Now, you know, there's any number of complications with that. Obviously, a school board can't uh, look over every single lesson plan. Um, but it is interesting to me whenever teachers think that they have the, the ability or even the duty um, you know, to, to adopt some of these practices and, and that they are free to do so. I always wonder, where, where did you get the idea that, that, that this is within your power? Setting aside whether it's a good idea or a bad idea, there's just absolutely nothing in case law uh, that should lead a, a teacher to think that they, this is within their, their purview. It's, it's simply not. So, I mean, this is an enormous challenge for school boards. Um, and you know, if, if, I'm, if I'm concerned about this stuff, rather than passing legislation right now or, or calling my, my lawmakers, I'm, I'm going to my school board and saying, okay, what, what do we believe in, in this district? Is, is the country founded in 1619 or 1776? What are our views on critical race theory? What's the curriculum? Um, you know, what materials are authorized for use here? In other words, these are, these are legitimate questions for local school boards. Either you believe in local control or you don't, uh, but that's, that's the system we have. And that's, that's where these questions are really most meaningfully addressed. And it's important to note that as that plays up, Someone could say, well, a ban of any particular teaching content as opposed to post-secondary would probably not be constitutional if it came from the state legislature in the post-secondary context. But in K-12, absolutely, they have that authority. Am I reading that correct? 
Uh, I, I'm not a lawyer, um, but um, uh, Fire, Greg Lukianoff, um, Bonnie Snyder, and a few other co-authors just published a piece, actually, I think it was Ian who, who put it on my desk, that, that addressed this uh, one, many questions, including that one. And I think their conclusion was, yes, absolutely, states have the authority to do that. Aside from all this hubbub over the bills, which is gathering a lot of attention, if you think about efforts to do top-down reform in the past, whether it's through legislating what teachers should do or instituting some professional development, um, I got to say, they don't seem to have much traction on actual classroom practice. So if this is something that needs change, Ian, aside uh, or, or in line with the 1776 Unites Project, where do you think the actual traction is to be made on making sure that the teacher practice going on in our public schools is both age appropriate and content appropriate for the places that parents are sending their kids for, you know, seven hours a day, five days a week. We got to get back to bedrock foundation, literacy, literacy, literacy. You know, I, I think we just make this assumption that teachers, you know, the only struggle they're dealing with is uh, how to teach slavery in the classroom. How about the science of reading? You know, I mean, we've learned so much about how to effectively get kids uh, to, to read effectively. And yet this is still not permeated uh, schools of education, teachers. It's no accident that we have perennially been at this level where only about a third of our kids are reading at grade level. And I also have to say that the, the focus on the racial achievement gap, we've been at this for decades now. And we've made a lot of effort, both in time, treasure. We've virtually made no difference in closing the racial achievement gap. In fact, not only have we not closed the racial achievement gap in any meaningful way, we also haven't raised overall achievement levels in terms of reading in particular, same with numeracy. And so I just think, again, we gotta get back to uh, basics. Uh, and, and again, there are a lot of white kids that are not uh, reading at grade level. So, so maybe those things are, maybe the things we gotta get back on are do teachers know how to effectively teach reading? Are um, enough kids in neighborhoods where they have access to great schools, you know, school choice? What's the impact of kids who are being raised in unstable family structures, which have exploded given the explosion in non-marital birth rates over the last five, six decades? These are real issues that have an impact on kids' ability to read and do math. It doesn't mean that racism is, is not an issue. But if you look at the totality of the story, there are far more issues in my view that are dominating why kids are not achieving. And this focus on critical race theory, it starts narrow casting where, well, if we've had a racial disparity, then that must be racism, right? And if it must be racism, then the only solution is now we got to start separating all the white teachers and having them declare their oppressive tendencies you become monocausal in your causality, and that means you become monocausal in the solutions that you put forth. We should not be happy in this country if, if we raise uh, the level of achievement of black and brown kids nearly to the, the current level of, uh, of white and Asian kids. That would be a victory in closing the achievement gap, but it would be a pyrrhic victory at best. It would be a pyrrhic Look, you know, I, I'm a literacy guy, okay? So, I mean, nothing would, 
would please me more than to, to, to set this aside so we could get back exactly as you say, Ian, to kind of the, the, the basic blocking and tackling, which we've frankly never been very good at in American education. You know, that said, I'm not naive about these things. Um, you know, when, when people you know, lament that that education gets politicized, I always I always like to say, like, look, education is not above the fray. It is the fray. And, and what I mean by that is uh, we send our kids to school, not just for reading and writing, but to, you know, to, 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 to make their way in the world, get along with others, learn, learn kind of the rules of the road of, you know, navigating civil society. So, you know, how they interpret uh, those broader signals is, is part and parcel of education. It's not going to go away. We shouldn't wish for it to go away. Uh, so yeah, I, I share your desire to see us kind of, you know, get back to the job that we're, we've never been very, very good at to begin with. But, but you know, th this is not a sideshow. This is an important conversation too. Yeah, and, and again, we can have in, in a focus on literacy, that doesn't mean um, you can you can have rich texts, which again they're telling the the complete story of the African American experience. But you know, so the two things are not at uh, cross purposes. But I just I get the sense this conversation right now is all about: Are we teaching about slavery in our classrooms because of the historic and contemporary uh, uh, racist structures in this country? It seems to be doing our kids, all kids, a massive disservice. The one prefix I'd love to introduce, you know how we, you can no longer just have racism anymore. It's gotta be structural, it's institutional, it's systemic. You know, I wanna introduce a new adjective and that is surmountable. We have to get kids to understand that this phenomena exists. It's part of the human condition. So how do they understand that racism does exist in the world, but it is surmountable because by the way, there are millions and millions and millions of people who've demonstrated that they can be successful. So what are the strategies to make racism surmountable? As with so many other ideas of Ian Rose, I'm stealing that one. <laughs> yeah, that, that one could be weaponized both ways. But uh, yeah, if you can get the, if you can win the semantic debate, Ian, uh, you're 85% you're of the way there. So um, Robert, Ian. Thanks for coming on the report card to talk about critical race theory. It's a tough topic and, and tough to get specific on. You've done a good job for us. So thanks for coming on. Thanks for listening to the report card. And special thanks to our guests, Ian Rowe and Robert Pondicio. I also want to thank our producer, newly married, Matt Rice. He makes this podcast possible. You can subscribe to the report card on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you download your podcasts. And while you're there, take a minute to leave us a review. It helps others find the show. As always, you can send your comments, questions, and topic suggestions to ed.podcast at aei.org. That's it for this episode. I'm Nat Malkus. Malchus.